Hello, and welcome to Global Research Unlocked, where we discuss what's rising from growth industries to rising risks and opportunities in global markets. I'm TJ Thornton, Head of Product Marketing at B of A Global Research, and we're recording this episode on Tuesday, October 17, 2023. There have been clinical trials that show that when you get off these therapeutics, where you can lose potentially 15 to 20 percent of your weight, that you gain around 50 percent of that, yes, five zero back. And why is this? It's because these drugs are working to reduce your appetite, making you feel full for longer. When you're no longer on the drug, your cravings come back and therefore you go back to your previous lifestyle. That said, there's some patients that are able to maintain this weight loss through lifestyle modifications, and they're able to use these GLP-1s as a jumpstart to their weight loss journey. There's a lot of excitement in markets, on social media, and in communities about GLP-1s, a new class of weight loss drugs. But for certain stocks and groups, excitement around GLP-1s has translated into weariness around the companies selling things from snack food to knee replacements to diabetes technology. Today, we'll offer some quick background on GLP-1s, and we'll discuss how they may impact other products and the magnitude of impact. Also, while the market may perceive this as mostly negative for certain areas of medtech, lower obesity could actually be helpful in other regards. We're joined by Alex Hammond, U.S. biopharmaceuticals analyst, Pete Galbo, senior U.S. packaged food and beverage analyst, and Travis Steed, senior U.S. medical supplies and devices analyst. All are part of B of A Global Research. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us on. Thanks for having us on, TJ. Okay, so let's start with Alex. Alex, earlier this year, we recorded a podcast on the pipeline for the latest generation of obesity therapeutics called GLP-1s. There has been quite an uptick in interest since we last spoke, and not only have drug companies been impacted by the swift uptake of these products, but a range of other groups from those that make snacks to those that make products for diabetes have been impacted too. How are these drugs impacting people's behavior and their potential need for healthcare down the line? Great question, TJ. So these new anti-obesity therapeutics are GLP-1s. So how do they work and what are the effects? GLP-1s are glucagon-like peptides and they are hormones that are responsible for the incretin effect or the augmentation of insulin secretion. And there are many downstream effects of GLP-1s. The first thing is that they slow gastric emptying. And so what does that mean? These increase fullness and they reduce food intake. They are also GLP-1 receptors in the brain. So these decrease appetite, cravings, and addictive behaviors. Finally, they impact the pancreas by stimulating insulin release, decreasing blood sugar, and that's how they also can impact type 2 diabetes. Further, there's this gut-brain access. These drugs modulate neurotransmitters, including dopamine, and therefore reduce cravings. Not only can these drugs have a near-term impact, but also weight loss has a host of other impacts, including improvements in liver disease, kidney disease, heart disease, lipids, and waistlines. Alex, I know one of the controversies around these drugs is how people will pay for them. They're not cheap. What do they cost? And are they mostly being paid for out of pocket at this point? Also, do you expect eventually them to be covered by Medicare from commercial insurers as well, particularly because of all the positives that these drugs should bring? Right now, this class of therapeutics costs around $1,300 a month. So obviously, that's quite expensive. 
But that said, there are certain insurance providers that do cover these therapeutics. One of the main companies out there has said that around 45 million out of 110 million Americans with obesity have commercial access. What does that actually mean? When we've chatted with some of our doctors, they've said that while these people have access, they can't actually get these drugs because they have to show that they tried to lose weight, that they went to the doctor, they worked out. There's all these additional step edits that really require patients to go above and beyond. But the challenge is at around $16,000 a year, these drugs are expensive. You have to show that they're cost effective. And that's where these pharma companies have made a lot of progress, showing that these drugs can reduce cardiovascular outcomes by greater than 20%, showing that you can have improvements in liver disease, kidney disease, etc. Where are we in terms of Medicare coverage? Right now, Medicare does not cover anti-obesity therapeutics through a policy. But right now, there's the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act that's currently on the congressional floor. This is like the eighth iteration of this policy. And there's a whisper that it could cost around $50 billion, which is one of the reasons why this has not yet passed. So the biggest hurdle remains a potential CBO budget score that hasn't been released. However, there's been a movement by some in Congress to direct a CBO to score the bill as a savings, given some academic research suggests that large savings for Medicare due to lower diabetes and heart disease if obesity is reduced. And so typically the precedent in healthcare is that once Medicare covers a drug, commercial insurance follows suit. So we are expecting that the TROA to be approved in the next two to three years. And if so, this would definitely create an inflection in terms of commercial access and therefore use. Okay, and Alex, last one for you before we go to Pete. We've talked about how GLP-1s can alter behavior, but does behavior go back to normal once people stop taking these drugs? Is the assumption that once you start, you won't stop? Or if you do stop, the things just go back to normal and thus maybe some of the impacts that we had been talking about won't be quite as large? TJ, this is definitely one of the biggest debates in the space. There have been clinical trials that show that when you get off these therapeutics, where you can lose potentially 15 to 20% of your weight, that you gain around 50% of that, yes, 5-0 back. And why is this? It's because these drugs are working to reduce your appetite, making you feel full for longer. When you're no longer on the drug, your cravings come back and therefore you go back to your previous lifestyle. That said, there's some patients that are able to maintain this weight loss through lifestyle modifications. And they're able to use these GLP-1s as a jumpstart to their weight loss journey. The precedent that we're working through right now is that patients are likely to remain on therapy for six to nine months. They'll lose the weight, and then they'll probably go on a drug holiday. Maybe when they gain some of that weight back, they'll get back on. But that said, these drugs are quite expensive. And until we see broad coverage, it's hard to imagine a scenario when people will be on these for chronic treatment. That said, there is a select portion of patients, probably with a BMI of 40 plus, that will likely have to be on these forever. But there could be an induction maintenance phase, i.e. patients can get on the injectables to jumpstart, lose 20% of the weight. And then to maintain these weight loss, they could get on orals, which are hypothetically a little bit cheaper and have better tolerability. There's still a lot of work to be done, but we've made great progress and we're really excited for the future. Okay. Thanks, Alex. And a quick follow-up, because the next two speakers are going to talk about what people might be doing less of, or these fears that people may be doing less of. It's interesting to think about what people might be doing more of. You talked about lifestyle modifications. So if you get off these drugs, are these people going to be inclined or at least encouraged to go to the gym and do things like that? That's another big debate in the space. I think yes. 
So I have to imagine if you have joint pain, partly because you're overweight, if you lose that weight, your joints are feeling better, you're going to be more likely to want to go out, go on walks, enjoy sports that you previously haven't been able to and spend time with your family. So all of that could actually be a real benefit for some of the other sectors, consumer, retail, potentially even med tech in terms of knee replacements, etc. It's a little downside for all the other sectors. You just have to parse it out a little bit. Okay, thanks, Alex. Pete, you collaborated with the healthcare and consumer teams on a recent note on the impact of these GLP-1s. How much of an impact are they likely to have on calorie consumption? And which calories do you think people will cut out? Will it be the Carolina barbecue chips at two in the afternoon? Or is it going to be carbs with a meal, maybe even protein? Thanks, TJ. Based on some of the work and using some of the inputs from Alex's team, We've estimated that at a max time, calorie consumption could be hit somewhere between the 1% and 3% range, and that's on total daily calorie consumption. Not to make a mountain out of a molehill here, but we're talking about not substantial overall calorie decline if, in fact, some of the assumptions that Alex and Eve have put together end up feeding through to fruition by the end of the decade. To your second question around what calories are going to get cut out, We've taken a stand or a stab at this and not saying with any certainty. I think leveraging some of the work from our colleague on the restaurants team, Sarah Senator, some of the macronutrient consumption trends that have at least been shown in the early parts of the data would suggest maybe that carbs are more at risk than proteins. But certainly from our perspective, where we see it impacting more so would probably be based on eating occasion more so than what the overall intake is. What does that mean? From our perspective, it's snacking. Are you cutting out that 2 p.m. bag of chips, as you mentioned? That's probably a more at-risk consumption trend than, say, skipping out on a meal. Maybe you have other reasons to be participating in it. We eat for more than just fuel. We eat for social occasions and et cetera. In terms of what else we're thinking on that front, I think it probably puts at-home food consumption a bit more at-risk versus away from home. Again, given this idea that if you're eating at home, it's more of a sustaining nature versus if you're going out to eat with family or friends, there are second, third, fourth order derivative reasons why you might actually be doing that. Okay, and Pete, many of the packaged food stocks have been hit hard on this, maybe harder than that 1% to 3% range on daily calorie consumption would suggest. Do you think that impact is overdone? And how do you think your companies respond? Because they're not going to sit still when it comes to this threat. They're going to try and make up the business in some way. What we started to see, at least initially, was the impact to the packaged food stocks. We started to see that bleed more into the beverage stocks as well. So think about are there impacts not only on soft drink consumption, but also on alcohol. In terms of your question about is it overdone, I think as we start to talk about fifth and sixth derivative effects into other consumer sectors, it probably tells you that this is hitting pretty close to a fever pitch. It seems that a lot of our conversations are a bit less discerning on that point where a number of folks will throw the proverbial spaghetti at the wall and see if it sticks. I do think that we're hitting a point where it's become overdone. The only caveat I would add to that in the consumer staples landscape, and this has been in our most recently published research, is these companies' stock prices are being impacted by rising interest rates. And some of the work we've shown is actually higher interest rates are probably a prevailing dominant theme vis-a-vis GLP-1 to the impact of overall consumer staple stocks. In terms of how the companies may end up responding, we've started to get at least a little bit of a flavor in some of the recent earnings calls 
and public appearances by some of the companies, it's still very early for them to be able to say with any definitiveness what they're expecting. One of the things that over the longer term, if this does become a more prominent headwind that they have spoken about is, do you change pack sizes? What does that look like? Are you selling a one ounce bag of chips as opposed to an ounce and a half or two in a single serve? Do you reduce the size of the cereal box from 14 ounces to 10 ounces as a way to combat what might be smaller portion sizes, but still expecting those meal occasions? Okay, great. Travis, obesity places more stress on people's knees and has contributed to knee osteoarthritis. Does less weight mean less of a need for knee replacements? Yeah, absolutely. Not surprisingly, obesity drives a lot of medtech procedures and bad health outcomes for people. But when you think about ortho specifically, it can be a complex thing to break down because you've got puts and takes on both ends. And to think about today, roughly 10% of knee procedures can't be performed because people are too obese. And so these GLP-1s could potentially bring 10% of patients down into the category where they can be operated on. On the other hand, there may be people who have knee pain, they lose weight, their knee hurts a little bit less. Maybe they decide to delay their knee pain or their knee surgery. But there's already a $2 billion market of injections that people do today to delay knee surgery. And it's a progressive disease. It's not like the GLP-1s are going to reverse the damage that's been created from years and years of arthritis. You might delay a surgery if your knee hurts less because you have less weight on it, but it doesn't fix the actual knee issue. You're going to get the procedure at some point in the future. So there's a lot of puts and takes. Got it. And as we were just saying with Alex, in theory, if people who are on these drugs choose to then get more active, join the softball team, go for a run, they could be desiring knee surgery where maybe before they were willing to live without it. Is that right? Is that the theory at least? It is another one of the many variables of this process. Yes, you're absolutely correct. You want to get more active, you lose weight, and potentially getting more active actually causes more damage to the knee. And a lot of the companies that sell knee implants also do sports medicine. And so you play sports, you hurt your ankle, your shoulder, you need another surgery for those injuries, which is even outside of this. Travis, I also want to talk about diabetes. Many of these diabetes stocks have been hit hard on the advent of GLP-1s. What does it do for diabetes? Does it reduce the prevalence? Does it change the way that it may be treated if people take these drugs and lose a bunch of weight? These drugs have been on the market since 2005 and indicated in type 2 diabetes. And I'd say the one thing, type 2 people have been using these drugs. The drugs have gotten better. The efficacy has gotten better. I'd say for diabetes, what we're learning is the diabetes market can be broken down into two populations. One's type 1 and one's type 2. The smaller type 1 market is a bit more genetic. And GLP-1 so far have not been proven to have an impact at all on the type 1 market. Type 1 patients that are using insulin pumps and CGMs should not be impacted by this. It's really the type 2 market where the focus is. And the question is, how many of the people in the type 2 market will need insulin? Because those are the people that potentially could use insulin pumps at some point in the future. And how many people in the type 2 market are going to have A1Cs that basically cures their diabetes? It doesn't really cure the diabetes, but it would treat them enough that their what's called A1C would be normal. And if it's normal, the question is, do they use these devices or not? You've got continuous glucose monitors, which actually measure the glucose levels. And a lot of the feedback so far has been that even people on GLP-1s 
still want to know what their glucose levels are. That's a debate at this point. You can use CGM for a lot of the lifestyle management programs that potentially may be required by insurance companies over time. As we talked about earlier in the podcast, people aren't going to want to pay for these drugs forever. And so if they lose weight with the drugs and they want to decide that they can make lifestyle changes, CGMs could help with that. That's one potential beneficiary here. I'd say the stock moves in some of these spaces, a lot of them were high valuation names to begin with. And so I think the moves have been exasperated by the valuations because it's more about the question on a longer term TAM, how big is the TAM? And that's going to be something that is going to take time to prove out. It's hard to know with certainty. I would say that when you think about the type two market, the TAM are large to begin with and underpenetrated. And that's an important point. If you think about insulin pumps today, only 5% of the type two insulin using patients are on an insulin pump. Yes, your TAM is going to potentially be smaller, but you've still got a long ways to go. So the near-term impact on estimates seems unlikely. It's more about what happens in five to 10 years from now, or even longer than that. You can think about CGM penetration in type two. I'd say the patients that are on insulin in type two, penetration is about 25%, 30% of that population. But the people who are on basal insulin, which is another 2 million people, the penetration of CGM is only 10%. Even if the TAM longer term shrinks, it's not going to impact growth near term for these companies. Okay. Travis, are there other areas of medtech that will be impacted beyond just knees and diabetes? Absolutely. If you think about the data from the companies that make the GLP-1 drugs, they're running a lot of clinical trials to help get entrance coverage for these drugs. And not surprisingly, a lot of those trials go head to head with a lot of the medtech devices, given the link between obesity and medical device procedures. There are potential impacts in cardio longer term. If you have cardiovascular procedures for devices, if more people have lower weight, better hearts, there could be an impact there. There's potentially impact in sleep apnea. There's very few places within the medical device space that does not have a link to obesity. That's why the space has been performing the way it has. I would just caveat though, that when you do some modeling longer term, it's not like these companies are not going to grow. It's more about what happens five to 10 years again from these drugs. Okay. All right. Thanks, Travis. Alex, it's interesting because there's been this narrative forever about how healthcare costs will rise forever because of demographics, because of inflation. But obesity costs the healthcare system a lot of money, right? And now there's this possibility that at least some big portion of that could be cut out, which is a fairly hopeful way to end. So I just wanted to hear from you about just how much the data suggests that obesity costs the system and how that compares to the overall amount of money that we spend on healthcare. According to the CDC, the U.S. healthcare system spends nearly $173 billion a year on obesity. And when we speak to our KOLs, they always say that obesity, if nothing is done, will bankrupt the system. While these therapeutics are expensive, something does need to be done. And to put this in context, Medicare spend is around $900 billion a year. And again, the whisper for the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act is only around $50 billion, which is around 5%. So that seems pretty reasonable considering all the long-term benefits. And there's been some academic research that has shown that if both Medicare and private insurance cover these therapeutics, 10 years down the line, Medicare could save greater than $275 billion just in all these downstream effects of liver disease, kidney disease, heart attacks, et cetera. 
So there definitely is a rationale for this treatment. It's just proving to both individuals as well as the United States government that this isn't a lifestyle disease. This is a chronic medical condition, and we need to treat it in order to save the healthcare system money. Okay, great. Alex, Pete, and Travis, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. There's still a lot that's unknown around GLP-1s. How long will people be on them? How many will be on them? How will appetites and activity levels change? But we're still in the early stages of adoption for these drugs. There could be as many as 10 times as many people in the U.S. taking them in the future as there are today. There will be impact on food consumption, even if it only amounts to a calorie reduction of a few percentage points. People might have the ability to be more active, which has implications for medical devices. But we often hear about how healthcare spend is unsustainable, particularly as our society ages. But these drugs could slow that spend longer term, even though they could cost us more in the interim. Thanks for joining. Bank of America and B of A Securities are the marketing names for the global banking businesses and global markets businesses, which includes B of A Global Research of Bank of America Corporation. Lending, derivatives, and other commercial banking activities are performed globally by banking affiliates of Bank of America Corporation, including Bank of America N.A., member FDIC. Securities, trading, research, strategic advisory, and other investment banking and markets activities are performed globally by affiliates of Bank of America Corporation, including in the United States, B of A Securities, Inc., a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC, and in other jurisdictions by locally registered entities. Copyright 2023 Bank of America Corporation. All rights reserved.